We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. My guest today needs no introduction. You know her, you love her, and I couldn't be more excited to share our conversation. Savannah Guthrie is my co-anchor on today, but more importantly, She's become a dear friend of mine. She's held my hand on the tough days and rejoiced with me on the celebratory ones. And by the end of this conversation, my hope is you'll get to see the Savannah that I get to see every single day. Today, she's opening up about a very personal project. It's her latest book called Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. This collection of essays is a beautiful and honest exploration of questions, doubts, and fears about the love of God, full of reflections on faith and everyday life. Pulled from personal experience, Savannah shares stories of her own joys and sorrows as a daughter, a mother, a wife, friend, and journalist. Her words encourage all of us to consider our own connection with faith and a belief in something bigger than ourselves— As Savannah puts it so beautifully, mostly what God does is love. No matter what religion you may or may not follow, this conversation is sure to touch your soul. Savannah writes with words straight from her heart to yours, with a voice so authentically SG, full of brilliance, humor, and grace. Mostly what God does is love, and you can feel the love in every word. I'm Hoda Kotb. Welcome to season five of my podcast, Making Space. Okay, first of all, this is totally weird because what I feel like is happening right now is the conversations that we have before the show on the set, which I have to confess are some of the most meaningful conversations I have all day long. Me too. For reals. So you brought this up to me a long time ago and you had this idea, this feeling, this sense that it was time to write a book about faith, kind of. So tell me how it like came to be initially. Well, I mean- you were there. What happened was, you know, from time to time since I wrote the kids' books, mm-hmm. you know, a publisher or an editor might call and be like, oh, do you want to write a cookbook? Or do you <laughs> want to do this or do you want to do another of those princesses' books? And I'm like, no, no, because you know, Hoda, how low energy and lazy I really am. I'm the opposite of you. I'm the opposite You're- of Jenna. Y'all have 16 jobs. <laughs> you have a podcast. You have a production company, this, that. I'm not. I go home. I take a nap. And then I hang out with my kids. And that's it. And so I've always just, I just have never said yes to any of those things. And last year around this time, I got a call about, would you ever want to write something about your faith? Mm. And I didn't say no right away. I was like, you know, that's something I could get excited about. That's the thing I'm most interested in. That's what I find most challenging. That's what I'm so passionate about. I feel like I might have something to say. 
So I decided to try. Mm. And you were a big part of that because even after I had a quote unquote book deal, I said to everyone, nobody's cashing any checks. Yeah. Agent, that's you too. Yeah. You know, because I don't know if I'm going to end up with a book at the end of this process. I'm only committing to try. And you were a huge part of encouraging me and saying, no, you have to do this. You should do this. You have something to say. Say it. I feel like for the very first time, to me, this is my take on it. For the very first time, you are being 100% yourself. And that is the hardest thing in the world to be. And you couldn't have written this book a year ago, two years ago. You couldn't have written it five years ago. You could, you had to write it now. And what's cool to me about it is people know bits and pieces about you. You've talked about some of your family's struggles, a little bit here and there. There's no flesh on the bones. Nobody knows the real story. And I found myself paging through it going, I didn't know that. And I feel like I know you. So what was it like finally saying, this is me, world, take me or leave me? Well, you know what's so interesting? I say right off the bat, it's not a memoir because it isn't. Uh, Number one, I'm not that interested in myself and can't (laughs) imagine anyone else would be either. Second of all, I can't remember anything. I mean, I make a joke in the book that my memoir would be called like, what happened with a question mark? Like really, what did happen? I have no idea. But what I realized is faith, which is endlessly fascinating to me Mm. and is at the core of who I Mm. am, which is why it feels so personal and vulnerable and exposed. Faith doesn't happen in a vacuum. You don't stand at a chalkboard with a pointer and be Mm. like, these are the six essentials of faith or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like faith happens worked out in lives, real lives, real experiences, Mm. real heartbreaks, real sorrow, real disappointments, real shocks. And so to tell that story, I had to tell a little bit of my story. And the only things I tell are in service to something that I learned along the way about faith. But it was really, really personal and super scary. And in some ways, I had to touch some grief Mm. that I don't often touch. And I think that was valuable. And for a long time, when I was going through this process, I thought maybe that's all this is about. Hmm. It's not going to end up in a book. It's going to end up in this amazing experience I'm having with God Hmm. and myself, thinking, learning, being excited. It wasn't just stuff I've thought for 20 years. It was stuff I was learning live Hmm. as we were going along. And that's That was really amazing experience for me. So God steps into your life at some point. Some, some kids get it when they're little babes. Some learn about God later in life. When did God come to you? I, my, I mean, in my family, my sister has the best line in the book, of course, because she's the writer. <laughs> but she said God was the sixth member of our family. Mm-hmm. We had, there were five of us, Guthrie's originally, and God was the sixth member. And it is true, God has always been part of my consciousness almost from the second I have any consciousness. But I think when I was about six or seven years old, we went to a Baptist church and they used to do this thing at the end where they called it an invitation. And it would be like, and if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come on down the aisle. And I remember asking my mom and dad one day, what is that all about? What does that, mean? that mean? And they told me and they kind of looked at it as the opportunity, like, oh, she must be interested in mm. getting baptized. And that's, I kind of remember that as the the earliest memories I have of getting to know God. But I've been in this conversation with God since I was six years old. It's been a whole 
lifetime of like getting to know him, like, and understanding things that, you know, I didn't understand then. And I understand so much better now. So when you were little, did you see God as um, a big towering figure, something loving, someone caring, someone scary? All of the above. Yeah. Probably not so much the loving aspect of Mm. it. I think that my churchy upbringing was very much focused on like your sin and what you did wrong and salvation. Mm -hmm. And you have to believe in Jesus Christ if you want to get to heaven. And it was very much, you know, especially as little kids, you, you know, you conflate God with like whatever father or authority figure you have in your life. So it could be, um, there were certainly aspects that were like, oh, God is protecting me. God will save me. But also God is scary. God disapproves. God is Mm -hmm. mad at me. Um, In my junior high, almost early high school years, I remember years of thinking, well, I think I'm, I think I'm a Christian, but does God think, I, like, is my mm. belief good enough? Like, am I going to have salvation? Am I going to get mm. to heaven? It was all kind of transactional in that mm. way. I wanted to be good. I wanted to control God and be a good girl. I wasn't that good of a girl, but I wasn't so bad that he'd have to take severe action. You know what I mean? Like that. And that actually goes on for like my twenties and Uh thirties, you know, where I think I'm trying to manipulate God by staying enough on his good side, being like pretty decent, but definitely not perfect, but I'm sure there are worse cases you have to deal with. So I'll just be here in this middle ground. And I was just sort of navigating and not until my life kind of fell apart did I really understand who God was Mm. and that mostly what God does is love me and you and everyone. When you told me about the title of that book, it hit me like an arrow. Mostly what God does is love. I mean, that is so profound and simple and something I don't know that I've actually thought about in that way. How did that come to you? Well, for me, it was like a radical reframing of everything I thought I knew and understood about God and faith. It just cleared out the decks. And it's, I didn't write that line. Mm -hmm. I write about in the book, you know, um, there are many different translations of the Bible and there's one called The Message and it's written Mm -hmm. by this amazing scholar named Eugene Peterson. And he took the whole Bible and translated it essentially into slang. And his whole view and casual conversational talk, like we're talking, and his whole theory of the case was, you know, Jesus didn't in his day speak in some dialect that was you know, posh or educated. He spoke in the street language that was totally understandable to the Mm -hmm. people of his time. So he tried to translate the Bible that way. And he translates a verse, a lovely verse from Ephesians that's about like, you know— Observe a life of love and 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 observe how Christ loved us and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it's a lovely verse. Eugene Peterson translated it to, watch what God does and you do it too. Like how children learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. When I read that, <laughs> watch That's, what God does and you yeah. do it too. Yeah. Mostly what God does is love you. Uh, it's like- Profound. 90% yes. of it, is him loving you? Am I doing the right thing? Did yeah. I marry the right person? Should I do this job or that job? Am I selfish? Am I insecure? Am I a basket case? Do I deserve love? Do I really love anyone? Am I hopeless? Am I a sinner? Am I deserving of shame? Mostly what God does is love you. Oh, what's your question? <laughs> There's only one answer. God loves you. And that's not a throwaway love. And I think that's what the book is 
standing for and trying to express is this is not a bumper sticker. Mm -mm. This isn't some vague assurance that you like and has surface curb appeal, but isn't going to be there for you when you really need it. No, here's the thing. God really knows you, really knows you. And mostly what God does is love you. How can that be? He has ultimate credibility in knowing you and you can be who you are. Tell the truth about who you are to yourself and to God. Here's what you're going to find out. Mostly what God does is love you. Mm. It's a bedrock principle. You can take it to the bank. I don't know anything about anything else, but I know that. (laughs) And I have to remind myself of that all the time. Yes. Even this very morning. You know, it's funny. I read the book when you first sent me chapter by chapter and I reread it last night when I was going through a difficult time with my daughter and I was worried, am I, am I um, enough? Am I doing it right? And it's so interesting because there's a part in here that I don't remember where it is now because I have so many dog ears. <laughs> I literally dog eared your book, but it makes the parallel on how God loves us and how we love our own children. And that was like, I had already read that, by the way, a few months ago. And it didn't hit me, but it hit me last night like it was meant for me in that moment. Describe that that love. That, for me, having children uh-huh. was a revelation on every single level. Mm-hmm. Physically, yes. yes. Emotionally, yes. Relationally, yes. Intellectually, yes. But above all, spiritually. Because for me, you know, first of all, I had my kids in my 40s. We had our kids mm-hmm. late. You know, you go through life, you have your ups and downs, your heart breaks a few dozen times, you get some scar mm-hmm. tissue. You can still be an open, loving, warm, wonderful person or try to be, but still have like a, a deep invulnerability about you mm. and a hard exterior. And I definitely had that. And in some ways probably still do. But let me tell you, when I had kids, that was over because I was so totally vulnerable to them mm. because I knew that whatever happened, if anything happened to them, I would not be okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be okay. And it was terrifying. Mm. I was totally terrified by my vulnerability. So that was the first thing I learned from being a mom. But it was also a heart opening and mm-hmm. a world breaking open kind of experience <laughs> for that reason. Because you realize, oh, on the other side of this vulnerability is this incredible love. Then you love your kids and you realize how enthralled you are with them, Mm -hmm. how they thrill you, how you're so exhilarated. You're just tickled by them. You think they're so funny and delightful (laughs) and they're so smart and cute. And they're so frustrating and irritating and you cannot get through to them. And you're just trying to explain, like, there's a reason you can't have ice cream for breakfast. This does not make me a jerk. (laughs) When I really absorbed the fact that the way I loved my kids was the way that God loves me, it's transformative. Mm to really let yourself sit there and think, what if God is delighted in me? Mm. Not he tolerates, accepts, or out of the goodness of his heart forgives and redeems me, which is what I think most of our religious Mm -hmm. and faith thinking is. No, God likes me. Mm. He loves me and he likes me. Mm. He gets a kick out of me. (laughs) He's overjoyed at my successes and heartbroken at my failures. And when something doesn't go my way, he doesn't sit around and say, you had it coming. You made your bed, now lie in it. He Mm -hmm. says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry that had to happen to you. Oh, I don't know if I can fix it for you, but come here, I'll hold you. 
let me sit alongside you. When you realize that that's who God is, and you know what that's like because you have your kids. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Uh It's transformative. It changes everything. It's hard to stay there. It's hard to soak in that. But if you can just for a second glimpse it, like really glimpse it, really allow it in, let it penetrate you. He loves you just the way you adore your kids. He Mm. adores you. It's shocking. That's profound. Too good to be true. (laughs) And yet... And I actually reread that a couple of times last night because, um, you know, it's so funny. I, I read a lot of your kind of books. I really do. I love them all too. I have them by my bedside. If you went to my bedside, you'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> this book stands above them because to me, there are unique thoughts that hit you in a place that is so tender that I, I mean, I was having trouble absorbing it because it was, it felt like that. I was reading the stuff about your uh, father's passing, and he passed when you were young. He was 49, he was right? 49. I was 49. 16. You were a 16-year-old girl, just in high school, doing what high school kids do. Yeah. What, what happened there? Just tell me what happened first. Yeah, my father, um, he, had, he smoked. He was a lifelong smoker. He also grew up in southeastern Kentucky, and, you know— um, there was a family mine and he worked in it a bunch. And so he had, it was all set up for heart disease and that kind of thing. Mostly the hard living, mm-hmm. hard drinking and smoking. He mm-hmm. definitely had that. But he was also an amazing, magnetic, joyous, charismatic, mm. incredible, loving, warm, kind, forbearing personality. But he was a force. He was a huge force. I mean, mm. he was the center of our mm. family you know, sometimes for good and sometimes not for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a heart attack one day. He actually, went, when I was a freshman in high school, I was 13 or 14, he had a heart attack. And I think he almost died, mm-hmm. but he didn't. They didn't tell us all that much about it, although I remember him telling me about a near-death experience he had oh. when I was in high school. That's um, scary to think that that Yes, man. well, it was interesting. He was also very faithful. So he, yeah. he had grown up in like kind of that— classic Protestant tradition. My mom was Catholic for the first 10 years of their marriage. They weren't in, they didn't go to church. They were mm-hmm. like, they were lapsed everything. Yeah, they right. just were very secular, didn't care. And then at some point my dad's like, should we get these kids in church? <laughs> and they started going to this Baptist church in Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up. And they, um, you, you know, just had a real like old fashioned, like mm-hmm. conversion experience where they had a, a spiritual transformation. And so my dad was very, very faithful and faith became a huge part of our lives. So he had a heart attack when I was 16. It happened on a Friday night. I came where home one, you? I was out with my friends, yeah. you know, I was like, come home. My curfew was midnight or something. Yeah. I'll never forget the moment. I'll never forget coming in the front door and seeing that the lights were on, wondering why the lights were on, seeing my mom and sister on the couch and their heads were bowed. And I knew, I knew something was badly wrong the way you can feel it. And there's like an electricity in the air. And I can remember my mom coming toward me to try to hug me and tell me really fast, dad died, dad died. And how shocking it was and just tore the whole, whole world apart. And, um, Yeah, it just changed everything for us. And I think a lot of my life has been a response to that. Mm. And I don't think you ever get over your grief, you know? Mm. And I even I talked about in the book, like, I remember one morning coming into the Today Show 
and thinking about things I was writing and realizing, oh, I think I'm going to have to touch my grief mm. to do this. I think I'm going to have to touch it. Mm. But that didn't mean like soak in it. No. Because I can't. I still can't. I always think of grief as like this cup that is like a cup of water that's full and you carry it around once something like this happens and your water cup is full. And when it first happens, you might have tons pouring out and pouring mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. And then you just carry your cup around for your whole life and you spill it out sometimes on little drops. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just hold it and nothing comes mm-hmm. out. But that cup will be emptied. And by the time you die, that cup will be emptied. But mm. it's going to be something that you carry with you always. And it won't always hurt to to take out your grief, you know? Sometimes it feels good. If I can have a tear or cry for my father, I'm glad because it's an act of love. Hmm. It's me saying, I still love you, daddy. Mm -hmm. You still have Mm. a hold on my heart, daddy, Mm -hmm. you know? And I don't get to think that way or even say that word, daddy, very much, you know? So. I love that you call them that. That's so sweet. Oh, gosh. And, you know, it's funny, I was remembering when you were telling, we, everyone who's, who's listened, who's lost a parent knows this feeling too. You're sitting there and you look at the table settings. I remember our table. I was just thinking about that when you were talking. It's like there were five and he always sat there. And all of a sudden there's like, we don't put a placemat there now or we don't have the, so what do we all still sit here? And how does it work? And how does it unfold? The metaphor is not just for the physical space, yeah. but- I would say decades and arguably still trying to figure out how do we be a family without him? Mm. How do we be a family of four? How do we, there's a lot of pain when you lose someone in your immediate family and a lot of just trying to figure out. And we'd have like in those early years, like we were teenagers. Yeah. My brother was in his twenties. My mom was, I had to go back to work. She took care of her oh, mother geez. and my uncle Pierce who had Down syndrome. They moved in. I mean, the amount of stress that my mother had to take on she was 46 years old Holy when my father moly. died. Holy moly. When I think about that now. Anyway, you know, you'd have like years of like, we'd get a knockdown, drag out, like emotional yeah. fights about this or that. And at one point I just realized, oh my gosh, we're just trying to figure out how to be a family without him. Like we just don't, we don't know yet. Did you talk about him? We, we did, you we did. did. Yeah. yeah, we talked, we did. There was yeah. never, it was never like a, oh, don't talk about yeah. dad or something. No, we definitely did. What did it do to you? Because- Sometimes those kind of moments will take your faith and throw it out the window and sometimes it'll strengthen. What what happened with you? You know, I remember actually, even then, some of my high school friends who you know knew of my faith would say, well, now what do you think? Does that make you not believe or not want to believe in mm. God? And I remember saying one time, oh no, now I need him more than ever. Wow. This is when I need him the most. Wow. And that's true. But also these are faith-shaking events. You know, when when you have a setback of any kind, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the death of a parent as a teenager. It can be a breakup that is it hurts you or a setback mm-hmm. in your job or just life not turning out the way mm-hmm. that you want it to. You know, the book it has a lot to do with like doubt and lack mm-hmm. of faith. And all like, and by the way, spoiler alert, there are no answers. You know, I was like, Savannah, why do you have to take on the question of like, why does God, a good, why would a good God permit suffering? Yeah. Why do I? Why am I writing an essay about that? <laughs> so what did Spoiler you alert: There is no answer because I felt like it was a cop out yeah, to not to not. It's a cop out to not take on the hard questions of doubt. But guess what? There is no answer. Mm-hmm. That's faith. Faith is letting your doubt coincide with your belief. That's faith. It's not a lack of doubt. It's 
taking your doubt, if you can't embrace it, just coexisting with it and accepting it mm. and holding it together in the presence of God. That is faith. So yes, I, I have had my doubts. I never doubted God's existence. Mm-mm. For whatever reason, that particular challenge was not mine. But doubting whether God was good or loved me or was well-intentioned to me, mm-hmm. it's not like I sat around saying like, I don't believe you, God. My actions demonstrated my lack of faith in God's trustworthiness mm. to care for me and care mm. for my heart. Mm. And I've been reading a lot of old journals through this whole exercise, and that comes through so loud and clear. I almost don't recognize the God that I was writing to and corresponding with and had a relationship with because I was so afraid that he had some terrible comeuppance waiting for me or some powerful lesson that I surely deserved and needed but didn't really want. And so I held him at a distance like, don't get too close. I Mm -hmm. really can't trust you. And what I've come to learn, and I think I learned it through not because the bad things didn't happen but because they did, Mm. but because the disasters did happen because I did mess up many times in my life and God was actually just there loving me. (laughs) And that's when I learned. And isn't that funny? The thing I feared the most, (laughs) something bad happening, something humiliating, painful life lessons. This is what I would always write about. I don't Mm -hmm. want this bad thing to happen. I just Mm want to stay on the straight and narrow, be a good girl, and these bad things won't happen. Well, then the bad things happened, and I was still okay, and God was there for me, and God loved me. And that's where my faith transformed. So to this day, it's like, I still, I'm still afraid of all those things. Yeah, you are. I mean, that's like the vulnerability. And you know me so well. I'm Mm -hmm. always like, well, what if this other (laughs) shoe drops? And maybe that's what happens when you come home one night on a Friday night and you're 16 and your father drops dead out of nowhere. Maybe that's, maybe that's that's just who you end up being. You just know that calamity is always right around the corner or you know that your pride or your ego is going to be the death of you. And so you're constantly vigilantly like, don't get too big for your britches. Oh, don't think Mm -hmm. you're good at that. Oh, don't think you can, you know, and I very much have Mm. that. And it's Mm -hmm. genuine. I'm not like, no, I'm like, no, I have a lot of self-doubt, but my confidence comes from God and I'm cool with that. I don't need it to come from me. I don't trust me. I don't trust my own self-assessment. I know that's a very controversial thing to say, but I'm not sure I'll get it right. I'll either be too harsh or too kind. Only with reference to God and something concrete can I have an accurate picture of myself. I think Oswald Chambers or Eugene Peterson or one of these authors I love said something like that. Only with reference to God can we get an accurate picture of of ourselves. Tim Keller, who's like a preacher I really Mm -hmm. admire, says, you're loved more than you could possibly fathom. (laughs) And you're far worse than you would ever believe at the same time. (laughs) Wow, that's big. And in a way, it seems paradoxical. No. no. But in really, Mm -hmm. intellectually, Mm -hmm. it's the only thing that makes sense. See, Mm -hmm. because you're not like in the middle. You're both and. Yes. At the same time. And in my faith, I believe that God is there loving that whole picture. And that's what gives me confidence, not anything burning within me or any of my own abilities. I can't trust in my own abilities because I've been there too many times when I've let myself down. I can't trust my own morals because I fail every day. Every day 
I do things I shouldn't do. Every day I say things I shouldn't say. Mm -hmm. Every day I think things I shouldn't think. Every day. So where would I be if I didn't believe in God? If I didn't have a loving God who I believed loved me anyway, saw it. Total credibility. Saw it all. Probably saw it worse. It loved me anyway. Mm. I need a minute. Cut. <laughs> I need a minute. I mean, I'm not kidding. I think you I think you just spewed out a couple extra chapters. <laughs> no, this just, I mean, there are a couple of extra chapters. You're like, that there. is not in the book. Oh my oh, yeah. God. This is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, okay, but wait, hold on, <laughs> so hold funny. on. No, there are more you just you just literally had to. But do to, you know what I mean? Yes. It makes sense. Yes. It, it actually makes, makes far more sense than sitting yes. around being like, I'm a boss bitch. Yes. Cause you're like, yes. Yeah. No, you're it, not. No, and you're you know not. you're not. So stop trying to so how tell you, yourself that you're so great when you actually know. Because you're living it. But that doesn't mean you're horrible. Yeah. But you are kind of horrible. And that's <laughs> okay. okay too. Because you know what you are? You're human. You're human. And every human is loved by God. Yeah. And every human bears the image of God. Mm. Okay? Okay. So that's who we are. All of it. All of it. Coming up, Savannah shares how her faith serves as her foundation and the profound spiritual lessons she's learned throughout her life. Stay with us. Every parent is a busy parent. There's enough on your plate without piling on your kids' homework. And considering how much teaching methods have changed, most of us are a little rusty anyway. Consider IXL, an excellent resource for homework that can make a huge impact on your child's ability to learn. Backed by research, kids using IXL are actually scoring higher on their tests. Our techniques help them master topics in a fun way, complete with positive feedback. We're seeing improvements all across the country as IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., and IXL is also very affordable. One month of IXL costs less than the typical hour of tutoring. On just one website, IXL covers all the kids in your home from pre-K to 12th grade. Sign up today to get 20% off your membership at IXL.com H-O-D-A. That's IXL.com H-O-D-A. I feel like when I listen to you on the set, you're really, I mean, everyone knows you're super smart. It's almost annoying. You're like, oh God, you're like, you'll think of something 10 steps ahead. So that always made me think when I think about you, like we have two sides of us, our intellect and our spirit. And sometimes our spirit gets to drive while our intellect rides in the back seat, <laughs> And our spirit just says, hold on, sweetie, we're going to make it. And your intellect's like, wait, what about this? What about this? Right, this wrong. I'm curious who drives with you because some days I think it's all spirit driving. And sometimes I think it's intellect and your spirit's in the back going, when is she going to be done so that I can get back where I belong? <laughs> Probably you're right. Yeah. Probably both like yeah. on any given day. Yeah. You know, I mean, my brain is, as you know, yeah. a very terrifying place <laughs> and I'm full of anxiety and agita and misgivings and second guessing. And brilliance and, and humor. I just, I don't know. It's like a yeah, hot all mess. Of it. I you know, love it I all. always joke yeah. about like my psyche being like, it's like a Rube Goldberg device <laughs> where it's like, it's on a matchstick with like a blow dryer that's blowing and there's a piece of hair and then like a, you know, a dresser on top of it. And that's my psyche. And it's holding currently, but don't like blow on it. 
It's all falling down. Okay. And there's a certain aspect of me that I think you recognize that to be the case. Like it's a, it's a mess, but what's not a mess is this like thing that's outside. Yes. Which is my faith. And that's my foundation. Yes. Yes. And so I can lean on that and it allows me to be my mess. And the older I get, the more slightly embracing I am of my Mishigas. Mm. I love that word, don't you? I love you? it too. It's one of the best. It really is. I don't know how you spell it. I don't need Mish. Uh, Mishagas. I don't know. Yeah. So when you, um, I just want to go down your professional road for a second, because I've wondered in my life, like, I feel like this profession would not be one that I would ever choose only because my role in life has always been, I've been a cheerleader since I can remember. I cheered on my football team. The football team would yell if our team wasn't winning. Come on, Hody, get them going. Like, no matter what, on my basketball team, I was the captain, not because I was the best, but because I knew how to lift everybody up. And that was my thing. The idea that I would do something that is public made zero sense to me, zero, and still kind of does until someone told me one day, and this was, this was how I was raised. They said, did your dad see you? And funny in my house, um, not really, I don't think. Mm. I was the middle kid. And then my dad was, you know, like they were back then. They went to work and they came home and how were your grades and go to bed and, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And the person said to me, oh, well, that makes total sense. And I go, what? He goes, she goes, well, now everybody's, everybody's seeing you. And I thought, did I really do that? Did that all happen just because I wasn't seen? But you in this profession is interesting because this wasn't your path at all. You were off to law school and to, you wanted to be a lawyer. That was your thing. But you wound up here. So how do you think your spiritual path brought you to where you are today? Well, first of all, I just want to say that in the acknowledgments, I thank you. And I'm laughing because I said Hoda Kotb and her two pom-poms yeah. <laughs> cheered me to the finish line. There you go. Yeah, that's me. It's By you. Way, that is the reason I, that's and the reason I'm I would I'm also here. argue that you are cheering people every day. You cheer people by your presence. You cheer all of us who work with you. You cheer the people you're interviewing. You cheer them and you give them the courage to speak. So you're still cheering, but you're also, yes, you are mm. also being seen. Mm. And guess what? Hoda, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. It's okay to want to be seen. You know, you don't have to be all, oh, not me. Don't look at me. You know what? It's okay. Okay. Because I like what I'm seeing. Okay. Stop that. Stop. Okay. Stop. Side, that's stop a tangent. It. Okay. Um, but, Go you know, on. I yeah. actually think a lot about, first of all, I did I, TV. It was my yeah. first job. And yeah. then I went off to law school. Because yes. again, agita, yes. like, oh, my job, I can't, uh, I can't do this, that. I, yeah. I started in TV. Yeah. The fact that I sought out to be on TV makes me laugh, but yeah. also it makes a lot of sense in the sense that I, and I write about this in the book, like mm-hmm. I've always been blabby, always had a big <laughs> mouth, always like to speak, um, like to hear myself talk, like to write, like to communicate. So that yes. kind of tracks. Yes. A funny thing that I've maybe never really talked about, but often think about is I grew up, um, really is quite an unattractive child, <laughs> chubby and messy hair. I wasn't a pretty girl. I, you know, boys never liked me, all that kind of stuff. You and I've laughed about uh-huh. this many times. We have the pictures uh-huh. to show. <laughs> Thankfully, this is a podcast and people can't look at our school pictures. But sometimes I have thought about what am I trying or what was I trying what affirmation was I trying mm. to get by pursuing a career on television? Yeah. Like if someone would put me on TV, did that mean I mm. couldn't, 
I wasn't really that ugly girl, mm. you know, mm. anymore. And I think it reminded mm. me when you said that because there is a way that our career choices can be yes. an answer to or a solve for yes. a little problem we've been carrying yes. all our lives. Now, the interesting thing is, it's not like we go on TV. You sit with no. me every day. Yeah. Do I look in the mirror and go, God, I look great today. <laughs> I don't think either of us has ever said that. No. <laughs> what worse. I actually think is, yeah. oh my gosh, I look, I look ho- like all, oh, it, it's actually terrible for me. It's the worst <laughs> thing I could have done. Cause then I just feel terrible about myself and I'm like, oh, I look bad and this, that, and the other. And so it's actually not been great for me. <laughs> But it's interesting to me, I guess. This is sort of a tangent. I don't think it leads to anywhere. Other than it leads nowhere. But other than it's just kind of interesting. Like, I think we do respond to things from our childhood, our insecurities, or a need that we are not getting met, that we think we could get met via this particular career. You speak in your book about, um, you don't go into detail and you make this clear at the start. I had a divorce. I'm not going into all of it. But there were a lot of big aha epiphany moments that came as a result of that breakup. Yeah. Um, most of us, and, you know, I've been divorced too. It's sort of like you feel there's a failure part of it. There's a part, was there something that I didn't do? Why couldn't I make this work? What did you learn from that moment? I, I think the biggest lesson I learned and really ended up being one of the more profound spiritual lessons of my life, actually, was, you know, I told you how I I was kind of a goody-goody and trying to stay on God's good side. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say I'm a goody-goody because somebody's got pictures of me like holding the (laughs) six-pack or smoking the cigs or doing this, kissing the boy you just met 10 minutes ago at the bar. Like, I wasn't that good, okay? But I had a kind of goody-goody mentality and I was always wanting the fairy tale and wanting to kind of live up to these rigorous moral standards. Failing all the time, but holding them and believing still that I could have this kind of fairy tale Mm. life, get married and Mm. have kids. And my kids would all play music and we would sing rounds and we'd go to church on Sunday. And I had this whole vision. When I got married and then I got divorced, a thing I thought would never happen to me, that I would never allow to happen to me. I mean, I used to say things such as, you shouldn't get married if divorce is in your vocabulary. (laughs) You said that? I said that wow. when yeah. I was 20 and stupid <laughs> and had been going to too much church in the 80s. You know, like that was the kind of thing that right. I thought. Like right. I had all these like, yes. right. I, again, I wasn't really acting super morally, but I ha- I knew what, the, yes. I knew where the bar was. Right. I, I had the ideals and mm-hmm. I was planning and hoping to more or less live up to them. And when I got divorced, it was so concrete you are a divorced person mm. and there's no reframing of that you can do. You can't sugarcoat it. Yeah. You can't bring all of whatever communication mm-hmm. gifts you have to sugarcoat it, make it mm-hmm. seem better. It happened. Yeah. You failed. In my mind, I felt I was damaged goods mm. irreversibly. Mm. I'd ruined my life. I knew it. I didn't think it. I knew it. Mm. And that's when you start there, Mm. God's like, all right, now we can talk. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, oh, right. Okay. So now you recognize, right? Like that I'm here because 
because me, because yeah. like God's here because of who God is, yeah. not because of what you do. Right. You were never going to earn it. Are you kidding? No, that yep. was cute that you thought you could earn my favor. That's lovely that you thought you could earn your salvation. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it's here because I love you. Right. I love you whether you're divorced or not. I love you whether you sin or not. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I don't like sin either. There's a whole theological yeah. thing here. It's not like God's like, ah, who cares? Live and <laughs> yeah. let live, you know, whatever. No, there's a whole, and if we, on a different theology podcast yeah. with some different guests and <laughs> yeah. hosts, they can discuss yeah. that. And I understand all that. But what I'm saying is that if you do believe in God and you believe God forgives sins, then that's the starting point for me. And that's why my divorce taught me so much because mm. I was really at rock bottom in my soul, in my own self-judgment and mm. my own opinion of myself mm. was that I was like fatally, fatally flawed, fatally made a mistake. And once you realize that, there's a certain freedom there. Like, well— guess that fairy tale is not going to be happening. So might as well get real here. And I think it just really changed things for me. And I would never have expected that. But that's kind of what I'm alluding to when I say, I I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. Hmm. And again, I, to this day, I'm like, please, I, that was a great lesson, God. And we don't need any more humiliating and painful life lessons. Let's get it a different way. We don't need to go through the ringer. But, you know, but I will say if you are going through the ringer right now or, you know, something painful, that God is quite good at transforming those events. By the way, and I write a lot about this, I don't believe God caused that event. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of these, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Well, God must have had this mm -hmm. or that happen so you could yeah. learn this horrible lesson. Right. It's like, no, we live in a broken world. We have free will. Mm -hmm. This is not the world God designed. He does not tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. He is not a dictator up there. If anything, to me, the story of God, Jesus, it's one of great restraint. I'm going to let you choose your lives. Mm -hmm. And when you do mess up, as we all will because we're human, I will be there for you. That's it. By the way, the best part of the book is the way you're speaking right now is exactly how this book's written. So when you read this book, you will be laughing, crying, and it's spoken so plainly because I think religious, spiritual writings sometimes get so heavy. It's so you esoteric. You can't understand. If I have to read it twice. Yes. I mean, I like that sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I like to read things yeah. twice sometimes, but you know, it's written at like a first grade level. My daughter has read <laughs> it and it's supposed to be fun and a little irreverent. And Which it is. Just kind of like, I don't know if it's super deep. It's not profound it is. theology. It is super deep. But it's real. And I thought really hard about everything. I mean, I've highlighted and dog-eared everything. I haven't read one of the quotes because what you're saying here is just as good or may, or maybe should be in there. But <laughs> what did, hang on, let me just see. There've been moments in my life when I have been overcome by a sense of being loved by God, a warmth, an ecstasy even, a feeling that is so sweet and unmistakable. I'm certain that the Spirit of God is with me. It can come unexpectedly triggered by a song, a sunset, or a verse that suddenly comes to mind. It can also come upon me for no reason at all, but I know it's Him. I recognize him. It's so good. I could cry. But anyway, one time you asked Kathy Lee a question that I remembered, and I thought about it later. 
because Kathy Lee would sometimes say, God spoke to me and said X. God spoke to me and said Y. And you said, how do you know if it's God or if it's you? If it's your conscience, if it's your brain saying it? Because I think a lot of us wonder. And, and how do you address that or feel about that? Well, I write about that in the yeah. book too. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the the yep. most perplexing questions a person of faith can ask. Am I hearing God's voice or am I hearing my own internal voice yeah. telling me what I'd like, like to hear? Yeah. Or sometimes telling me what I don't want to hear. And I think, so it must be God being like, no, you cannot <laughs> have that glazed donut. No, this is God. You may not have that third drink, you know? So it's like either way, you know? Yeah, so. And, um, you know, the th- there's a lot to, to talk about, but one mm-hmm. thing I realized, there's only been a couple of times in my life where I actually felt like I heard mm. God's voice. Mm. And one of them was when I was, I wasn't divorced yet, but I was in a very dark time and realizing that this marriage, this marriage I was in was just not going to make it. And I had been praying and praying and writing in my journal and just beseeching mm-hmm. God over and over again, like the prayer was just all boiled down to the same thing, like, save me, just save mm-hmm. me, rescue me. Mm-hmm. And I remember my circumstances didn't change at all. And in fact, I think they may have been getting progressively harder and mm. harder and harder. Mm. And I remember one day this sentence came in my head, I am rescuing you. And it was so shocking because it was so outside anything I would have ever thought or believed it was so outside the actual experience I was having in that moment. And I it forced me to reckon with it. Mm. It forced me, I mean, I, I was like, this did not come from me. And then I had to ask myself, well, how? I don't see any, where, where's my escape hatch? Where's my Hail Mary? Where's the change in my life? It's nowhere, it's mm-hmm. nowhere. But I knew that that's, I knew it was God. And only years later can I see Oh, he was rescuing me. And here's what it was that was so astonishing. My pain and my crisis and my sadness was my rescue. If I had had anything less hard, it would have never changed. Mm. I would have still been there Mm. trying to muddle through, doing the best I could. And so sometimes you might hear a voice like that. And if you do, I usually say, it's usually saying something that you don't expect and would never conjure on your own. Mm-hmm. But mostly I, what I believe is that God speaks our language, mm. the particular language of your human heart, Hoda. Mm. So he'll speak to you in music mm-hmm. or a book or a mm-hmm. friend. And then other people really respond to beauty mm-hmm. and nature mm-hmm. and because I've, over the years, learned a lot of Bible verses, sometimes I, I know that God speaks that language to me, mm. you know? And things that I've learned but haven't thought about in years will pop in my head. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I see what you did there. That's God. You know? Or I write about Psalm 23, which is this long psalm that I memorized when I was a little girl. And I it's, it's my psalm. It's everyone's mm. psalm, but <laughs> it's mine, TM. Um, and I've been carrying TM. it around all my, all my life. But, you know, funny little things happen where yeah. Psalm 23 just what, shows up. Yeah, tell me. Well, like one day, I, um, my pastor at church asked me to, I guess, give the sermon or give mm-hmm. a talk. And mm-hmm. I did. And I was really scared. And, of course, I had, like, imposter syndrome and all mm-hmm. the things. And they don't have any reason to know that Psalm 23 is my psalm. It had nothing to do with the scripture that week or anything mm. 
that we were talking about. And the mm-hmm. music pastor just gets up and does this like impromptu rendition of Psalm 23 mm. on acoustic guitar, singing the verse. Mm. And I'm like, okay, hi, <laughs> gotcha. see ya, okay, <laughs> message received. But I, I really mean that. I think God speaks to us in not English, Spanish, this, that. No, he speaks Hoda fluently. He speaks Savannah mm-hmm. fluently. Mm. One of my favorite stories in the book is a woman I met years and years ago who, she grew up Jewish. She then was an anthropology student. She didn't have any particular faith background at all, but she moved to this little town in Ireland and she was supposed to live and immerse herself in the culture. And she would sit on her back porch and write her, you know, field Mm -hmm. notes, type Mm -hmm. them up, and she's going to write her thesis. And one day these Irish school children burst in and they say, why aren't you at church? Sure, you must be an awful sinner, mom. You know, mom says you're a sinner. And she's like, oh my gosh. Oh, what are they saying? Oh, I need to go to church. Yeah, I guess I should because that's what people do here. So I'm an anthropologist. She goes in. It's a Catholic mass. It's 100% in Gaelic, a language she does not speak. She sits there, a Jewish girl who was, she says, trained to not even look at a cross. He's Uh not our savior. Don't look, avert Uh your eyes. And all of a sudden she's sitting in a little wooden, one room, Catholic mass in a language she does not even understand, not one word. And God speaks to her and she meets God. And from that point forward, begins a journey, not a simple journey, not an overnight journey. She didn't say like, Yes, hallelujah. I'm walking to the center to be saved. I'm the you know, it was the, it was a whole thing. But that's where she met God. Wow. And that's the point. It's like God speaks a language that speaks to our heart, even when it's in a, another language that you don't even understand. God is not constricted by things like language, time, space, relationships, failings, sadness. If you're gonna believe in God, have a good old robust concept of God. Believe big for him, have high aspirations. Because he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as the scripture says. Still ahead, Savannah opens up about the moments she feels closest to God and the message of divine love she hopes to share when we come back. ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. When do you feel closest to God? Mm. I think probably when I've messed up. 
and when I really need him, which is a lot. It's a lot. And gratitude. I feel very grateful that God loves me. And I really feel it. And not because I deserve it, but because I don't. And that's why it's so meaningful to me. That's why it means so much to me. Because I know. I'm in on the joke. I know who I am. (laughs) And I know I have not earned this love. And I know that I am the recipient of it anyway. And that's why I wanted to write the book. Because I wanted everyone to get in on that. Like I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) Wouldn't you want everyone to know? It's like... If you found a spray that takes red wine stains and gets it off your couch, wouldn't you want everyone to know? That will get that red wine stain right off of this chair. I want everyone to know, like, God loves you. That's all I know. I don't know Mm -hmm. anything about anything. I'm no theologian. I have no background. I have no background educationally. I have no credential spiritually. I have no, no moral claim to be able to say these things. All I have is the experience of being loved by God and being transformed by it. And it's also a transformation that I have to renew every day. Mm, That's interesting. Every day. Yeah. You got to like dip back into it and remind yourself. And I think that's why I feel closer to God when I've messed up because Mm -hmm. it brings me right back to Him. And, you know, I've recently been going through a season where— I've just been kind of confronting some things about myself. And the only thing I could say I've learned over these years compared to looking at old journals is that I just more bring my mess to him now and don't imagine his condemning. Mm. I don't water it down. I don't say what I've done or thought or said is not condemnation worthy or that he has a high opinion of it. I just bring it to him and trust and know that he's ready to process it with me and love me through it. And together we'll get up and get through another day. And that is so meaningful to me. I need it. I need it every day. I'm just going to say buy the book because (laughs) I think, I think that this book, mostly what God does is incredible. Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere by Savannah Guthrie. By Savannah Guthrie. Who? <laughs> Savannah, mm. you rock. This book is profound. And again, it doesn't even matter what your faith background is. When you read this book, you will go, oh, I see myself. Oh, I see myself. I hope. I really hope yeah. that it makes God appealing to everyone. Yes. Whether you believe in him or not. It's really not the point. He believes in you. So, you know— Take a crack at it. See, you know, it's, and I really try to like, I try to just, I try to just come to it really honestly. Like, I don't know if you can believe this, but if you could, it'd be pretty amazing for you. And um, God loves us. God loves you. God loves me. Isn't that great? That's the best. The book's the best too. Pick it up, you guys. Savannah, I love you. Love you. you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and for coming on this journey with me. If you like what you heard, and I hope that you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you tell your friends, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. 
Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Alexa Casavecchia. Our production assistant is Megan Cilio. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Mastro-Rilli. Our audio engineers are Bob Mallory and Katherine Anderson. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our head of audio production. Missy Dunlop-Parsons is our executive producer. Sharice Williams-Laredo is our senior producer. Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today and Lifestyle. Friday. Friday. It's almost like whoever named Friday knew it should be celebrated with free fries. Free fries Friday at McDonald's. Get a free medium fries with any purchase of a dollar or more on the McDonald's app. Offer valid through 930 to participate in McDonald's excludes tax.